Amen and amen. You can be seated. Glad you guys are here today. Glad I'm here today. I'm excited to be back. Uh, we've been working for two and a half years to get to the passages that we've been preaching uh, these last couple of weeks. I'm excited to be a part of getting to, uh, to, to preach this message today uh, after having been in Africa. So, so glad you're here and uh, pray it is a blessing to you. We're Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. The work that Jesus had come to do is done. Now, Jesus, who died on the cross, has risen from the grave. That's really what you guys studied last week, right? That's the rumor, anyway, that, that Jesus is alive. Angels have testified to a group of women that went early on that Sunday morning to honor Jesus in his death. The women went back to the eleven to tell them that what they had seen and what they had experienced, but this is unbelievable news. I mean, this is conspiracy theory kind of talk, right? Like, this is Elvis sightings material. Now, some of you are too young to remember Elvis sightings, but, but there was a day when even after Elvis had died, people were still running around saying that they had seen him alive, and it, people just thought they were loons. If I came to you and told you that someone you knew was dead, and I told you they were alive, you'd think I was either nuts, or, or, or it, at best case, I had just seen someone who looked like that person, right? Like, it's a difficult thing to believe. And regardless of how often he had told them, regardless of how he had sought to prepare them before his death, regardless of that, they were struggling with how to see their way forward. But Jesus isn't going to leave his people in this place for too much longer. Before the day is out, he is going to reveal himself to his People, this first Sunday, this first Easter, they are going to see him in the flesh. He is going to redeem their understanding of what the gospel was intended to be. He's going to restore their hope in him. And for Luke, the, the, the place that he shows us that first, uh, the, the first uh, revelation of that, or the first experience of that, I guess, if you will, is with two men or two disciples. I guess we don't know they're both men. There's two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This isn't the first time Jesus shows himself on, on that Easter morning, but it is the first time Luke tells us he shows himself. And so here we go. We're in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. It's a long passage. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll come back and break it down. It says this, that, that very day, that Sunday morning, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near to them, <clears throat> drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not. And said to, and said to, oh man, I lost my place, sorry. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the scriptures, the th- in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if they, he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while, we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Jesus meets these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He finds them talking about all that's been happening. This speaks to just how big an event this really was. It was a huge event, maybe the biggest thing that any of them had seen or experienced in their lifetime. This is massive. It was a, it was a huge spectacle. If you remember, this happened at Passover, so it wasn't just the normal people living in Jerusalem that were witnesses to it. This is people from all across the region, from all over Israel, from from all around, had come to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, and in the midst of that, the whole thing with Jesus, the, 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 the false accusations, the mock trials, the bringing him to Pilate and sending him to Herod, that had been all viewed by these people in Jerusalem. It was a multitude of people that gathered around the cross and watched Jesus be crucified. Maybe the largest, visual, or largest viewing of a crucifixion that we know of. Even three days later, they're still talking about it. These two disciples presumably are on their way home, and they're still talking about it. I mean, they are captured with this. They are struck with this. Probably they're talking about the most immediate events of his death and and the news that his body was gone. That the tomb was empty. But it just perplexed him. It just caused more confusion. It just caused more struggle. And then Jesus meets them on the road. He's not wearing a disguise. In fact, the text just tells us that they were made unable. They weren't able to recognize him. There's some spiritual blindness For some reason, God doesn't divulge to us. He keeps these two disciples from recognizing Jesus. Instead, Jesus comes near to them and enters into a conversation as if he's a stranger. What are you talking about? Now, just imagine, this this is huge. I mean, this would be the same as if someone had walked up to you on September 14th, 2001, while you're speaking to people about planes flying into towers and terrorists taking over those planes to do that thing. Someone had, if, if someone had walked up to you and asked what you're talking about, 
What in the, where have you been? Don't you know what's happening here? Haven't you heard? How could you not know what's going on? And so Cleophas, one of the disciples that's, that's here on the road, he's amazed. And he's like, well, don't you know? Don't you know? There's a lot of irony in that question. Because Cleophas is talking to Jesus and he doesn't know it. There's really only one person in this whole scenario that knows what's going on. And it isn't either one of the disciples that are talking about the events of the day. It's the man they're talking to. Jesus is the one who knows. And yet they question him. He's not doing this to manipulate or mess with them. He's doing it to enter into conversation with them. To meet them where they're at. To step into the midst of their situation and in the midst of their circumstance. And help them see that, that what they know isn't all that they need, need to know. And so he says to them, you foolish ones. Now, this is a strong word. It's like if I walked up to you and called you foolish, you'd be probably bothered by that and insulted. He's not calling them stupid. He's not, he's not insulting them. He's helping them see that they don't know all they need to know. There's pieces of the story that is missing. And because it is, they are standing there looking at him sad when they should be rejoicing. I mean, we all know what it is to be disappointed, right? We know what it is to face the, the, the disappointment of plans not coming to fruition. We know what it is to feel the, the, the despair of hopelessness when, when everything we, we had counted on falls apart and here we are left discouraged and in despair because we feel hopeless about what's next. That's exactly where these disciples are. That's, that's the, the things that they had planned on, the things that they had expected had not come to be. Did you hear what they said to him? As they spoke about Jesus, as they talked about who he was, they got so much right. We thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. But he's dead. Dead men don't lead revolutions. Dead men don't sit on thrones. Dead men don't do anything. For three years, Jesus had been walking from place to place, publicly ministering to people, doing amazing miracles, teaching astounding truths. They knew that he was a prophet sent from God, powerful before God and the people. They knew. But they didn't know everything they needed to know. You see, they didn't know the whole truth of the gospel. Cleopas describes Jesus' life and his death. He gets it right. But it isn't complete. It isn't enough. 
They didn't know the whole objective of Jesus' mission. They, they simply thought he was going to redeem Israel. He's going to be a king. He's going to establish a throne. He's going to, to make things the way they used to be. When we look back in the scriptures in the days of David, in the days of Solomon, Israel's going to be a great nation again. And Jesus, we thought he was the one that was going to do that. He, we thought he was going to liberate us from out from under Roman rule. We thought we were going to be a people of our own again. You see, they misunderstood that he had come to do much more than redeem a nation and reestablish a covenant with Israel. He had come to be a blessing to all nations. This was the promise of God to Abraham, that through him all nations would be blessed. That a kingdom of every tribe and every tongue and every nation would be formed. He came to establish a new covenant in his own blood. You see, Jesus had come to establish his kingdom. He had come to do his work. By redeeming sinners from their sin that they might live in his presence as members of his kingdom, as citizens of his kingdom, as children of the king forever and ever. You see, these men, they didn't realize how desperately they needed a savior. They just simply thought they needed someone to lead a revolution to help them out from under the hand of Rome. They have Jesus right here in front of them. But they don't recognize him. Spiritually blind to the fact that they are standing face to face with Jesus. The rumor is that he's alive. Some of the women had said it, but they just couldn't believe it. No one knew really what had happened to his body, at least as far as they knew. No one really knew what had happened to his body. The tomb was empty. But instead of finding a reason to rejoice, they found themselves in the depths of despair. False gospels are always going to do that to us. The false promises, the promises that we say God has made that he never made, that we begin to count on, will always leave us wanting. False gospels, good news that's not really good news, will always leave us empty. See, these guys, they, they had a form of the gospel. They had pieces of the gospel message. But it was incomplete. It makes it false. They needed to know. They needed to be taught. They needed to know what they didn't know. To know what they needed to be taught. Is that not possibly where we might find ourselves more often than we like to admit? Believing in some incomplete gospel, hoping God will fulfill some promise that he never really made, but we just interpreted it from his word because it suited our fancy. If you believe in Jesus enough, you'll never be sick. If you have enough faith, you'll be wealthy. If you find the right spouse, you'll know joy. 
if you have a spouse, I hope you know joy. (laughs) But you know it's not always about joy. My wife, is she in the room? Where's she at? She's not here, so I can't talk about her. She makes it easy for me. But we're two sinful people living together. Two selfishly sinful people living together. Don't you know that that at times causes great conflict? The false gospel of the right spouse, the false gospel of enough faith, the false gospel of the right job. Oh, if, if I just if I find the job that God intended for me, if I could just get the right occupation, the right amount of money, if, I, I'll never have to worry again. If I have the right amount of money in the bank, I will never have to worry again. I will be secure. I will be safe. All my problems will be solved. And then you hear about these people who have all the money in the depths of despair. Some going so far as to, make, to, to kill themselves and take their own life because these false gospels will always fail. We will be left in despair. We will find ourselves discouraged. See, Jesus... He met these men. He stood before these men, not to leave them in the the depths of despair, not to leave them in this place of believing this incomplete and therefore false gospel. He meets them, and he begins to teach them. He begins to show them the truth. He begins to point out the reality. He confronts them. Oh, you foolish ones, don't you know? Not because he simply wants to confront them and make them feel bad about themselves, but so that they can see the error and begin to believe the truth, so that they can see the lie revealed in the light of his truth. You see, so often we're about confronting people just simply so we can confront people. Confrontation is never an end into itself. Confrontation is about meeting people where they are so that they can see the truth, so that they can recognize what they need to know, so that they can respond to the truth of God. It's exactly what Jesus does with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And believe it or not, I'm, a, I'm convinced is where he meets each one of us. And I'm guessing since you're here today, he plans to meet with you. Because whether we've been longtime believers Long-time followers of Jesus Christ, or whether we, are never, we have never trusted him before, there is a reality that we believe wrongly. And we need to be corrected that we might believe the truth and quit believing our lies. And just so you know, and just so you see how that works out, I just use my own life as an example. Two, three weeks ago, I stood in front of you talking about Jesus, talking from the passage where Jesus is dying, and he says, into your hands I commit my spirit, speaking to his Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in the second service, we were still doing two services at that point, in the second service, suddenly the, the weight and the application of that sermon came crashing down on me. You see, I usually get to do these things in private. 
like when nobody's watching. I get to deal with it through the week and process the emotions on my own. I preached the first service and it didn't, it didn't hit me. It, I'm dense. It takes me a little bit. I'm slow. But in the middle of the second service, I'm talking to you about the peace that comes with this kind of faith, this peace that comes when you know that God is on your side, that you can trust yourself completely to him. And I realized I wasn't at peace. I'm just nervous. I'm scared. Feeling. Feeling anxious. Because there's things in my life that I can't control. There's circumstances that are beyond my power to actually accomplish. And my identity is so wrapped up in these things that if they don't go the way I want them to, I don't look like the man I want to look like. You see, as much as I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I still struggle with believing false gospels every day. And I'm pretty certain that if I do, you do. That's who we are. That's the place that our Savior has redeemed us from. And that until he returns, we will struggle with. But it was precisely at this point, this lack of knowledge, their lack of understanding, and therefore their lack of faith, that Jesus meets them and says, Oh, you foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. You see, they believed that a Redeemer had what was to come. They, they knew that they needed a prophet of God to come and reveal God's truth to them and do God's work for them. They knew to expect a king in David's line. They knew that there was going to be an eternal throne established and they knew that a king was coming. But they didn't realize how desperately that they needed a priest to come and make atonement for their sins. And more than that, they, 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 missed, they totally missed the fact that God, through His Scripture, had been telling them that the priest would come and the priest would not just come and atone for the sins, but He would be the sacrifice that made that atonement. And so he comes to them and he says, look here, look at the scripture. And he begins to teach them from the Old Testament, from Moses to all the prophets. He goes all the way back to the beginning. And he begins to show them how he has been the point of all the scripture. Was it not necessary, he says, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary that before the throne could be established, the king would have to suffer and die? Was it not necessary that the king would have to be the priest who became the sacrifice? This question gets to the heart of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus, the suffering Savior, is the risen Lord whose death and life redeems all who trust in Him. He is the suffering Savior and the risen Lord. This is the breadth of the gospel. This is the whole of the gospel. This is what makes the gospel good news. If Jesus had simply died and not risen, He'd not be worthy to believe in. His power would be finished because dead men don't lead anything. Dead men can't do anything. But if Jesus had risen, how could he rise without dying? 
If Jesus was just walking around living eternally and never dying, there'd be no payment for sin. There'd be no sacrifice that would atone for our sin and provide for the forgiveness of our sins and enable us to enjoy relationship with God. It is both that he suffered and died in our place for our sins, and three days later he rose from the grave promising us eternal life in all, for all time, living in his presence forever and ever. This is the whole of the gospel. These disciples, all they could believe is that all that they believed was that Jesus was coming to redeem Israel. I mean, just imagine if that was his mission. How long would have that lasted? If history tells us anything, it would have been a, for a generation or maybe two, maybe 20 generations. But it wouldn't be long before this stiff necked people, this rebellious people, rejected their God, disobeyed his commands, and again went their own way. Jesus came to accomplish his mission, the mission that he and his father had established before the foundation of the world. This gospel is that Jesus is both suffering Savior and risen Lord. This gospel is that all we can do is believe in him. He came to redeem a people for himself. We might know him forever. And he began to show them this all the way through as they continued to walk toward Emmaus. And he shows it to them in his word. Jesus, the risen Lord, redeems his people with his word. Jesus walks up to these two disciples. They, they don't recognize him. They can't recognize him. He begins to speak with them and, and shows them that they're in error. And he begins to teach them with his Word. I'm thankful. This is kind of shocking, actually, because you have the living word expounding on the written word to these two disciples so that they can believe the word. It's pretty neat when you stop and think about the flow of this. But the reality is, is that I, I appreciate it. See, a lot of times we feel at disadvantage because we weren't there seeing Jesus. We weren't there to see him with our own eyes. Well, wait a minute. Now, I, don't, I mean, come on. They had an advantage. They got to see Jesus. They got to know who he was. They got to see his miracles. They got to watch him do these things. Well, Jesus didn't work more miracles with these two men. In fact, or two disciples. In fact, they didn't even know who he was. All they had was his word. He teaches them from Moses to the prophets. Not only do we feel at a disadvantage in believing in him, we feel at a disadvantage at times of telling others about him because we can't work miracles. Like I can't walk out and say, hey, man, get up and walk. I can't make a blind man see just at the drop of a hat. But we have his word. And he showed them how the scriptures, which, which would have been the Old Testament at this point. I mean, they didn't have the New Testament written, right? Like Jesus is living out the New Testament now. The New Testament would be the, the letters that, that, that uh, interpret Jesus' life and apply it to the church. He's going to the Old Testament. And he's showing them how he is the point of the Old Testament. He's the key. If we pick up the Old Testament, read it without seeing it being fulfilled in Christ, I mean, it's easy to see how we just find a whole list of rules like this. This is a list of rules. I'm just supposed to obey these rules. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 these, these, these all point to me. They prepare you for me. 
We see the whole nature of God on display. We see his, along with his grace and his mercy and his patience, we see his glory and his holiness. We see his righteousness. And we see him promising over and over and over that he was going to one day establish an eternal kingdom with an eternal king. That he was going to bless all nations through one man. We don't know exactly what Jesus pointed to. We don't know exactly what passages he highlighted. But, but through the Old Testament, he showed that he was the point. There's a saying from St. Augustine. It, it, it goes like this. This, this grace, the, the gospel, this grace hid itself under a veil in the Old Testament. But it has been revealed in the New Testament according to the most perfectly ordered dispensation of the ages. For as much as God knew how to dispose all things. And it's been summarized, that statement's been summarized by some as, as, in this way. The new is the, in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. We don't walk away from part of the Bible just because it's difficult for us to understand. We take the truth that Jesus is being revealed in the whole thing and we look for him there. I mean, you just consider the teaching of the Old Testament just in broad scope. I mean, not only do you see God, you see yourself. We see ourselves blatantly on the pages of the Old Testament. We are sinners in need of a Savior. We are no different than Adam and Eve rejecting his good gifts and going our own way. We are no different than Abraham who didn't believe him enough for a son and went and made his own way to have a son. We're the same as, as the nation of Israel. Who, although we enter into promises of God, we don't uh, adhere to them. We don't listen to his warnings. But all along the way, he's promising a covenant that would be made, would be completely, utterly, totally dependent upon him. We don't disconnect ourselves. As it was said recently by a popular preacher and teacher, we don't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, from the Scripture that flies in the face of everything we know about the Bible. It flies in the face of what God intends to do through His Word. He redeems His people with His Word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I don't have these passages on the screen, but, but you know them. You're familiar with them. All Scripture, all Scripture, not just a part of it, not just a phrase of it. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In fact, it's so important that we hear the word, that we know the word that Paul, when he's speaking to Timothy, immediately following this passage, commending the scripture to him, he says this in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Is that, the, is that what's on our lips is that what captivates our conversations? Are we hearing this? Or are we listening to it? Are we obeying it? Are we recognizing the value of God's word? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. That means correct. Rebuke. That means show error. Exhort. Point them to Jesus. With complete patience and teaching. 
Know why you got to do it with complete patience and teaching? Because people like me are dense. We don't get it the first time around. In fact, I've been following Christ now, faithfully following Christ now for just over 20 years. And I still struggle with believing false gospels. With complete patience and teaching, preach the word. We don't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We don't think the New Testament exists by itself. There's some other God in the Old Testament, one God in the New Testament, one God in the Old Testament. This is God who has revealed himself in the scripture. We preach it. That the man of God may be complete, lacking in nothing. This is how Jesus redeems his people. This is how Jesus continues to redeem his people. Jesus, the risen Lord, redeems his people from death and sin. So we see how he does it with his word. And we see what he redeems them from, death and sin. Don't you know that the, that the, that, that the Redeemer had to, sacrifice, or had, to, had to suffer before he entered into his glory? Don't you know that this had to happen? Jesus had to die a sacrificial death. He had to die in t- to provide forgiveness so that we could enjoy the kingdom. The foundations of his kingdom rest on his sacrificial death. You remove the sacrificial death and you remove the gospel. You, you remove the power from the gospel. You remove God's ability to walk in relationship with you. God is holy. He is free from sin. And sin cannot be in his presence. It would burn, his glory would burn us up if not for Jesus' sacrifice. There'd be no hope of relationship with him. I mean, think of it like this. If God had not punished sin, he himself would not be the God the Bible claims him to be. Coming back from Africa, one of the first headlines that popped up on my news feed, like I get notifications from CNN, Politico, Fox, a bunch of different news sites, and One of the very first ones was about Judge Aaron Persky. Now, I didn't know who Judge Aaron Persky was, but the the headline said this. He's being voted out of his job. And I thought, that's strange. Why would they get, you know, typically like the judges on the ballots, that's the last thing. And people are like just checking, oh, he's Republican, he's Democrat. I like that. So they just check. Maybe I'm the only one that does that. You're looking at me like I'm the only one that does that. I just thought it was interesting that he was about to lose his job. And so I went and looked to see why he was losing his job. Because people weren't happy. The voters in California weren't happy with, some, with, 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 a, with a, uh, a decision he handed down. He gave a guy six months for, he, I, he, he sentenced a guy for six months for sexual assault. You see, people demand justice. We want justice. If God had overlooked sin and not punished sin, he would not be just. And in the same way, to remain consistent, the same way we have to get rid of Aaron Persky as a judge, we'd have to distance ourselves from God because he wouldn't be God. Because of who he is. Because of how offensive our sin is to him. If he was going to walk in relationship with us, if he was going to forgive our sin... The price of redemption still had to be paid. So Jesus did that for us. He died in our place for our sin. God poured out his wrath for the sin of his people on Jesus. Not in part, but the whole, as the song goes. Our sins are nailed to the cross. 
And all he requires of us, uh, us is faith, to believe it, to trust it. That's what the word teaches us. Again, it, without the word, we'd be, we'd be, we'd be stuck thinking, oh, I've got to be good enough, I've got to make my way. But the word shows us that it's not what we do, but what we believe, and not just what we believe, but who we believe in. Do we believe in a sacrificial Savior? Do we believe in the suffering Savior who is now the risen Lord? This is what, how He redeems us, and this is what He redeems us from, death and sin. Jesus didn't just come to lead a revolution. He's come to go before us, to lead people into a kingdom that would last forever, forever uh, uh, leading us out of a kingdom of death and sin, a kingdom of darkness and into a kingdom of light, a kingdom built on truth and life. You see, Jesus didn't just redeem us from death and sin. He redeemed us to something. He didn't just redeem us from something and then leave us morally neutral without some hope or some plan. Jesus, the risen Lord, redeems his people to know him. These men start the day Uncertain of what's going on with Jesus. What happened to Jesus? His body's gone. What could this mean? And they're standing face to face with him, talking, not recognizing him. And as they're listening to him teach, their hearts are burning, it says. And they get to Emmaus and they plead with him, don't, don't, don't go on. Now, I don't like the way that it, Jesus is not acting. He's not play acting as if he's going on. They just see in his actions he would have continued to walk if they hadn't stopped him. Like he's not playing a game with them. That's not, Jesus doesn't play games with us. But had they not stopped him, he would have kept walking. Just imagine what they had missed, what they would have missed. That moment, sitting at the table, after their hearts had been burning inside of them, after meeting him on the road, learning about how all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus, learning how the Old Testament had been leading to the day where Jesus would come, where Jesus would die, and where Jesus would then rise. Just imagine their hearts burning inside of them. Just imagine if they hadn't pled with him to come into their house and sit down and stay with them. But they did. Don't go. We want more. We long to be near you, with you more. So he sits down with them and does something odd because this was not his house and so it wouldn't have been his role, typically wouldn't have been his role to break the bread. But this man of honor this man, this teacher who had, been, who, who had been teaching in such a way that the truth was burning within them, takes the bread and breaks it. And at the moment he breaks it, they recognize him. See, Jesus redeems us so that we might know him. He redeems us from death and sin to relationship with him, to know him, to see him, to experience him, not just to know about him, not just to have a list of facts that we can spit out at people, but to, to have experience with him, to have knowledge of him, to have the, the, the relationship with him, to have time with him. He redeems his people so that we can know him. 
And when we know Him, the beauty of this is, is that we get everything that comes with that. The despair that they had in, endured earlier in the day is, is replaced by hope. He renews their hope. They had started the day hopeless. But having met the risen Lord, they're filled with hope. That's exactly what happens in all of us as believers. This is what Peter's talking about when he writes to the church, the early church, this scattered, suffering church. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is no dead hope. This is no simple wish. This is no desire that we have no certainty or confidence in. This is a living hope, a hope that will not disappoint us, a hope that is established and certain. It's a confident expectation in what is to come. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus had to die and Jesus had to rise so that we might be redeemed, so that we might know this living hope. And when we know Jesus, we know hope. He has given us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. It won't rot like a tomato in your refrigerator. It's undefiled. It is not bought with sin and in no way was cheated to get to. It is pure and clean. It is holy and it is unfading. This inheritance that is waiting for you, that this, this hope that you're looking forward to is unfading. It will never lose its new car smell. It's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Their hope is renewed and because of Jesus and our relationship to him, our hope is also renewed. And their joy, their joy was renewed. They were sad. They looked at Jesus sad. Do you not know what has happened? Are you the only one in all of Jerusalem that doesn't know what occurred? You can, you can, you, you can almost picture it as it says they, they stood there downcast. Likely tears in their eyes. But in this moment, when they saw Jesus, when they knew Jesus, when they had been redeemed to know the risen Lord, their joy was renewed. Peter would also describe this to that scattering, scattered and suffering church. He continues in his introduction, 1 Peter 1, 6-9, In this you rejoice. Oh, we rejoice. We're a people marked by happiness because we know the risen Savior, because we've been redeemed from death and sin to life with Christ. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Listen. We don't always walk in easy circumstances. Difficulty still happens. Suffering still occurs. But in this we rejoice. We have been redeemed from death and sin so that we might know Jesus and we might know the joy that comes at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, he goes on, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, 
You ever been so excited, so filled with joy that you couldn't explain all of it, that you couldn't put it into words? That moment, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, when that application came crashing down, I, 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 I mean, I bawled. I didn't, just, I didn't just cry a little bit. Like, I didn't just tear up. I bawled in front of you. But it wasn't because I was being crushed by the reality that I wasn't at peace. It was because I was so filled. I was so filled with joy that even in my fallenness, He loves me and He has me and I can commit my life into His hands. Because I know that I've been redeemed in Christ from death and sin to life with Him, to know Him. Because I know the pleasure of knowing my Savior. I have peace with God. I have hope for the future. And I know the joy of that today, even in the face of difficulty. I, can, I, I can't always put it into words, but man, the emotion is so rich and real that I know the excitement, the satisfaction, and the happiness, the joy. Of knowing my Savior. And knowing what comes with knowing my Savior. I can only imagine that this is what those disciples felt like. Is that bread broke. And they saw Him and they recognized Him. They didn't feel guilt because they hadn't recognized Him early. They felt joy because they saw Him now. This is the joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. This is the glory of knowing the great Creator who chose to be our Savior. As we are obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. You see, when Jesus redeems us to know Him, He gives us all the fruit of knowing Him. He renews our hope. He renews our joy. He renews our minds and our lives. I don't know what these plans, the plans that they had the next day was. But I bet they weren't planning on getting up and going back to Jerusalem. But that very night, having met the Savior, having seen Jesus face to face, they didn't wait for the sun to come up. They did the very thing they had asked him not to do. They got up and they ran in the middle of the night back to find the disciples so that they could talk about it. Because they wanted to celebrate it. They had plans on getting back to life as usual. But they would never be the same. What God had done, what Jesus had done by redeeming their minds would redeem what they would do with their lives. And again, this isn't just for them. This is what we see happening through the whole church. Ephesians 4, Paul writing to the church. He says this, verses 17 through 24. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. This is not in order to be a Christian. This is because you are a Christian, because of who you are now, because of what you have seen from Christ now. You no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. He's not calling them stupid. He's not calling them dumb. He's, not, he's just saying they don't have the knowledge. They don't know what they need to know. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. 
assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in, is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirits of your minds. To put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, this, this new life, this new mind, this new enlightenment, having been redeemed and, and, and brought into relationship with Jesus Christ, having the fruits of the hope and the joy brings fruits of a renewal of our mind that bears its fruit in our, in our renewed lives. We put off the old self. We put off the old way of life that we might walk in the new life. We cannot at the same time walk in both places. And this is exactly what we see happening with these disciples, and it's exactly what we've been called to in Christ. We don't just get the stuff that Jesus has to offer. We get him. But when we get Jesus, we get all that comes with him too. Jesus, the the risen Lord, redeems his people to know him, to be in relationship with him. Jesus, the risen Lord, redeems his people to unite in worship. The day it started, and it seems like everybody's just kind of dissipating, going their own way. We don't see all the details of this, but, but after the women come back and they tell the disciples about the, the, um, the, the body missing and, and the angel's declaration of Jesus' resurrection, Peter and John go to, um, to, the, to, the, uh, to the tomb, and they don't see his body, and, and they, they leave. It's not until later that night that they come back together. But these two disciples, presumably, were there. And they leave. If Jesus isn't risen, there's nothing to unite them. There's nothing to bind them together anymore. It's just a memory of following a guy who's now dead. But when they sit down at that table and when Jesus breaks that bread and they see him for who he is, all they could do is think about getting back to the other disciples so that they could tell them the truth about Jesus. This might well be considered the first worship gathering that celebrates the, the resurrection. The first worship gathering where they gather together. And, and, and here's the thing is that they run into the room. They find the 11 and they run into the room and they're like, hey, you're not going to believe what happened to us. And they say, no, 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 let us go first. Jesus is alive. He showed himself to Simon. Now, I imagine that the women were in the room. They're like, I told you so. Why didn't you listen to us? But all of these testimonies honoring Jesus, in awe of Jesus, loving Jesus, excited about Jesus being, having been dead, now being alive, worshiping him, uniting together, being bound together in the reality of the gospel. This is what Jesus redeems us to. He redeems us to himself, and he redeems us to unite with his people in worship so that together we will forever live in awe of who he is and what he has done. That's why the writer of Hebrews, as he's coming near the end of his letter, as he's been describing and explaining the, the, the reasons why we can be certain about our faith, he, he, he writes to the church, he says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. 
We have this opportunity every week to get together and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have every opportunity to stand together, to come together and talk about let the resurrection, the good news of Jesus Christ, death and resurrection be on our lips, encouraging one another, spurring one another on to good works. And it doesn't have to wait till Sunday morning. You see, the reality is I know that you get together. I know that you spend time together. But what is it that captivates our conversations? What is it that we're talking about? I'm sad to admit I'm afraid that more people know what shows I watch on Netflix than they know how much I celebrate and enjoy the reality of knowing that my Savior is alive. See, in a world of trends and desiring to be trendy, it's a whole lot easier to talk about the drinks we drink, the shows we watch, the hobbies we have, Brothers and sisters, we get to talk about something much more spectacular. We get to talk to one another with complete patience and teaching about the God who came, who put on flesh, who dwelt among us, who humbled himself to the point of death and then rose so that we might be redeemed. That's a conversation worth having. Encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. So what do we do in response to this? Believe it. Jesus is alive. Think about what that means for you today. Believe it. If you've been a long time follower of Jesus... Look at the error. Look at the lies that you continue to believe. And believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I am praying that in this moment you see him breaking the bread and you see Jesus so that you can believe in him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your son, for the sacrifice that you endured on our behalf that we might know you. Thank you for paying the price of redemption. Thank you for giving your son for us for that. But thank you so much for the hope that we have because of his risen, resurrected life. Would you open our eyes? Would you remove the spiritual blinders that we might see Jesus? And that in seeing him, the lies would be revealed so that we could believe the truth, so that we could turn from all of our false gospels and trust in the only one that bears the fruit of eternal life. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name, Spirit, by your power. Amen.